0: Morning, happy Sabbath. Nice to see each of you here today, and it's been a little while since I've been here, I think. But it's always nice to come to Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, there are several things I'd like to mention to you before I get into our study. Um, one is <clears throat> there, and I have a few little. Bookmarks here. There is a a small group of us from various places in the country that are studying the book Great Controversy, and it's by a conference call. It's once a week, Friday evening at 8 p.m., and it has been a tremendous blessing to me. Uh, We have someone present the subject from a chapter. We're getting close to the end of the book now. We're in the chapter now in the time of trouble. But I think once they finish the book, they're going to go all the way through it again. And it takes them about two years to cover the book. But um, we're studying the book, and then we have someone present. Then some other people comment. Callers calling in can ask questions or make comments. And it makes for a very nice study. But just to get your minds on these truths is of tremendous value. I would urge everyone to read the book, Great Controversy. But if anybody would like one of these, it's Friday night at 8 p.m., And I have a number of copies of these bookmarks here, okay? Um, You know, whenever I think about coming here, uh, there's always, what do you talk about? (laughs) It's like there's so many things that are important. So obviously, you cannot depend upon the pulpit to get all the information you need. That's not reasonable. But I would just like to take a moment or two here And if I may, by the grace of God, re-inspire you to seek to live this health message and improve your health. We are coming into the last days, and in order to stand up to the pressures of the last days, as a foundation of our character, we must have good health. Anything that will promote health is very important. In fact, we're told our health should be as sacredly guarded as our character. Um, My wife, uh, about the beginning of the year, decided that she needed to improve her health, so she started walking, and she worked her way up to walking about 25 miles a week for exercise, and she lost 23 pounds. So one day she thought, well, I'm going to try jogging a mile. The most she'd ever jogged in her life was two miles, and she, one day she jogged a mile, and it was pain-free. She thought, this is pretty wonderful. So anyway, she's gotten into doing some running and just since January, she's run twelve miles two or three times on a Sunday morning. So you know the the body can improve, and I would urge you to really make that an emphasis point in your life. Um, if you have just a little bit of time on the weekend, sometime I would suggest you look up a lady on YouTube. Her name's Barbara O'Neill. She is a Adventist woman in Australia who has a health Clinic, health retreat, and she has numerous subjects on the internet. Barbara O'Neill, YouTube. Um, one thing she mentions, she says, if it if you spent ten years neglecting your health, or even worse, maybe she says that it'll take about one month for every year that you've neglected your health to build it back up. Now that's I'm sure that's in a general sense, but that's very hopeful and very redemptive. Uh, to think that someone might have abused their health for 10 or 20 years, and in one year to 20 months, they are back up on top of the line again. But, so be inspired. She mentioned a very widely publicized story over there in Australia. There was a gentleman who was a farmer in his 60s, and the doctor said, you got six months to live. You have cancer. And it kind of set, set him in a spin mentally, and he didn't really know what to do. So he took a few belongings and of his things, he put them in a wheelbarrow, and he decided he was going to hike around Australia. Must have lived like a hobo, and he walked and, walked and walked and walked and walked and walked and walked and walked, and two years later he got home, and he was still alive, and he had no cancer in his body. <laughs> so, um, one one of the root causes of cancer is a lack of oxygen in the body. So to get oxygen in the body get exercise, and eat a low-fat diet. Too much fat will block the oxygen from accessing your body. So please be inspired to take care of your health. Um, This church has um, had me do uh, several weeks over a several-month period of time some contacts for Bible work. And... I have feel like I've been blessed with a very good experience doing that. Um, if I would take notes on all these experiences I have to even jog my memory, I've had a lot of experiences. I uh, was working uh, one day for under this in this church's area, and there was a gentleman uh, came out the door, and um, he said, "Yeah, he said I'm a Baptist, and my wife is a Catholic." I said, wow, you know how to get along, don't you? He said, yeah. He says, I go to the Catholic Church. He says, but I don't agree with them. But when I share with him the book, Great Controversy, he was very, very happy to get it. And he took it. Uh, there, are, Brothers and sisters, there are many people out there. But we've got to persist in keeping and going, and we will find them. Uh, very recently, I was out on a Sunday uh, doing some Bible work contacts, and I have on the back of my van a magnet that says BibleStudyOffer.com. It's one of the larger ones. I got it from Michigan Conference ABC. It's a magnet. It just goes right on your vehicle and says BibleStudyOffer.com Bible for free Bible studies and DVDs. And I had stopped at one address to do a call back. I pulled down the street to do another one. And as I pulled up into a parking spot along the side of the sidewalk, another car pulled up behind me. I rolled down my window. I said, am I in your parking spot? He said, no. He said, I saw the sign on the back of your vehicle. So he came to my, up to my car. We talked for at least 10 minutes. I gave him one of the, uh, the first four lessons of the Bible study thing. He said, you know, my wife and I have been going to ch- a certain church for 10 years. He said, we've become disillusioned because we, we are convinced this church is not following the Bible. And he said, for the last weeks, we have not been attending a church. So anyway, he called me this week, and I told him I would be glad to talk to him tonight or tomorrow morning. And He texted me back and he said, I'm looking forward to it. But there are people out there. Uh, I could tell you just lots of experiences. Hmm. Please keep going. Please keep doing your missionary work. Please get out. Please keep getting out the book, Great Controversy. Brothers and sisters, that book has the message for this time and we need to get it out. Yeah. I, uh, talked to a young man this week. He said, Yeah, he said, I had a, Old neighbor that died and he told me that the Roman system, meaning Roman Catholicism, that the Roman system is going to be the one, the system who enforces the mark of the beast. And I told him, I said, that is exactly right. And I said, this book that I'm sharing with you here will tell you exactly who the beast is and what the mark of the beast is. I've had people when I came back to there. I had another man just near the experience I told you, where the man pulled up behind me uh, because he noticed the bumper sticker. Another man on the second contact. I came back, and uh, the first time I'd been there, there was a lady there, and of course you could. uh, There was a number of uh, children there, and. They said, yeah, they said, in one month, we're going to get married. We're going to get married on August 11. Well, I happened to stop on August 12. I said, well, did you get married yesterday? He said, no. He said, my wife and I couldn't agree on how to raise children. So they both, it's a second marriage, and they couldn't agree, and he called it off. So he's not going to do it. But anyway, I got to talking to him. He says, I've not got to that book, Great Controversy, yet, he says, but I am very interested in it. And he took the first four lessons, too. Another lady, I stopped at the home. Her daughter had been there the first time, and when she came to the door, I told her who I was, and she she was aware of that. And I shared the lessons with her. She said, I am very interested in this. There's people looking for guidance and for help. And brothers and sisters, God has placed us here to get this message out. We are not merely a social group. We are a movement with a mission to give the everlasting gospel to the world. And upon their eternal destiny, does their acceptance or rejection of that message depend? So may God help us to be everything that we need to be to get the message out. Okay, I think I covered several points here. If you would just pause with me, I'm going to have a prayer, and then I will get into our study here briefly. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We pray today that the Holy Spirit will be with us as we open the word of God, that we will be blessed of thee, guided of thee, and Lord, please help me. You know how weak I am, and I am praying that Jesus and his word will be exalted, and that my brothers and sisters in this place will be blessed and convicted and drawn closer to thee. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. I would like for you to turn to the book of Revelation, and I would like to go to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. In the book of Revelation, is of are, are many important truths, but I'm going to uh, share with you today a concept from the book of Revelation that I think you will find to be very meaningful, and um, it's found here in Revelation chapter twelve and thirteen. And of course, many other places in the Bible. In Revelation chapter twelve, and all throughout the book of Revelation, of course throughout the Bible, we, one of the themes that is presented is the theme of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. The reason the book Great Controversy is called the book Great Controversy is because that book is devoted to that theme. It reveals the fact from many different ways that this world is in a great controversy between God and the devil and you and I must be, must know what's going on so that we can be on the right side. Now, Revelation chapter 12, John sees two wonders in heaven. The first wonder is a woman clothed with the sun. And then also in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, he says, There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Let me ask you, who is this red dragon that has seven heads and ten horns? Who is it? Not papal Rome. Rome, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's that's all right. And I heard another answer. Okay, but the reality of it is is both answers are right. The Bible specifically says that this red dragon with seven heads and ten horns is Satan. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, meaning he he deceived a third of the angels and, and they came with him to this earth and joined him in his rebellion. But this dragon is Satan. Now, if you observe here, the Holy Spirit has described Satan in this symbol of a red dragon that has seven heads and ten horns. This, has anybody ever seen in real life a creature with seven heads or more than one head? Uh, not really. I mean, it might be a freak of nature. But that would be the exception. This is, this is a principle here a, that's called amalgamation. The combining of various things together that are not natural in nature, but they're combined or brought together. Okay? It's unnatural. Now, when you go to Revelation chapter 13, John says, and I stood upon in the first part of the chapter, John so sees the beast so first you have the dragon in revelation chapter 12 then you have the first beast in revelation chapter 13 and then you have a lamb like beast in revelation chapter 13 after that all three of these beasts are amalgamated creatures john says in revelation chapter 13 he says and i stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having uh seven heads and ten excuse me here yeah seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. So he's got the body of a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear. And his mouth is the mouth of a lion. So this beast of Revelation 13 is a combination of all the beasts of Daniel chapter 7. You've read Daniel Revelation. You at least have a little bit of knowledge there, right? But this beast takes all four of those world kingdom symbols in Revelation 7 it's all combined into one. Now, when you go to Revelation chapter thirteen, verse eleven, John says, "And I behold another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as what a dragon." Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, "Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." So, this third symbol that we've just looked at, looked at the beast that comes up out of the earth. He looks like a lamb, but when he starts to talk, what spirit does he reveal? The dragon, exactly, or Satan. Now, the first beast of, that we looked at, Revelation 12, the red dragon with seven heads, is Satan, and it also refers to pagan Rome. The second beast that we looked at, Revelation chapter 13, is an amalgamation of the beast in Daniel chapter 7. Protestants have understood the fact that this represents the Roman Catholic system, which has amalgamated Christianity and, and, and paganism together, and that this system is the beast that will enforce the mark at the end of time, which we understand to be very clearly, brothers and sisters, I don't know what your knowledge is of Adventism, but brothers and sisters, very clearly for you, the seal of God is the seventh-day Sabbath in the last days, and Sunday, when it is enforced, will then become the mark of the beast at the end of time. And this beast, that is Roman Catholicism, is going to be a leading agent along with the second beast of Revelation 13 to enforce Sunday keeping at the end of time. And upon this issue, all the world will decide, and that will determine their eternal destiny because the day on which you worship shows whether your loyalty is with he who created the heavens and the earth or not. So... All these, these beasts, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, they're all amalgamated creatures. How many of you have ever been driving down the road and you saw a billboard and it had the body of a man and the head of a camel? You ever seen that? And it was advertising cigarettes. You seen that? Yeah. The body of a man, the head of a camel. That's an amalgamation. Okay? I have here... I want to show you, if I can pull this out. A... Okay, here's... Yeah. Those of you who have spent any time uh, in mythology books have seen various creatures that were combinations of man and animal or various animals put together. This is an amalgamation. Amalgamation means the combining of things that do not belong together. Okay? So the beast, the dragon, the false prophet are amalgamated creatures that the Holy Spirit has symbolized these systems of apostasy with. I have here a article from a Newsweek magazine quite a few years back. I don't know if you can see it or not, but it's a little monkey, and what the scientists did is they took genetic material from a monkey and from a jellyfish, and they combined it together and came up with a monkey that has jellyfish uh, genetics in it. I just recently got a email from Keep the Faith, where it describes how scientists are now combining the genetic material from the human brain into mice, and the mice that they are producing are much above the intelligence of other mice, and they're doing it for experimentation. Uh, you could probably study this subject for years, which I will not do but I find it an extremely interesting subject. Now, they can actually combine the genetic material from a plant with an animal. I have also here somewhere, I don't think I have it here, it's probably in my case, I have a picture of a goat that's called a geep, where they combine the genetic material of a sheep and a goat. But these are distortions of creation. Okay? Now, in the book, Three Spiritual Gifts, spiritual gifts, Volume 3, and I think this page is 64. It didn't come off when I copied it, but it should be page 64 and then page 75. Let me read to you what the servant of God says about the world before the flood. It says, but if there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast. which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God purposed to destroy by a flood that powerful long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. In other words, the scientific advancements of the pre-flood world and people was to the point where they were tampering with genetics and actually combining man and animal. Have you ever seen in a mythological picture the body of a horse? connected with the body of a man yeah. seen that yep uh, and there's all kinds of odd uh, things that are that they've done in this in this process now it says this is I'm going to read this quote again it says if there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by the flood it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere here's the other one. Page 75, same book. Every species of animal which God had created were preserved in the ark. Did you hear that? Every species which God had created were preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create were the result of amalgamation, genetic combining, were destroyed by the flood. Since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast. I personally believe that dinosaurs were the result of genetic tampering and engineering by the antediluvians before the flood came. I was in Texas one time. I've heard that park is closed since then, but there was a creek bed there where you could go along in the creek bed. And they had uncovered dinosaur tracks uh, right along with human tracks. And the dinosaur track that I put my hand into it was down below the water somewhat, but you could see it. It was about this size, a very large print from a pre flood animal. Now, if you amalgamate something, you mess it up. Okay. When you go to Daniel chapter 2, there is an amalgamation in the metals. At the very bottom of the image, you've got the feet, part of iron and part of clay. From what I've learned, I think it's correct, that these are not naturally found in nature, iron and clay mixed together. In the symbolism, the clay would represent religion or the church, and the iron would represent political influence in other words the iron and clay mixed in the feet of the image represents the combination of church and state which will especially characterize the world's last rebellion against god it's an amalgamation the combination of church and state is an amalgamation that's a whole subject in itself but that is not allowed by god god's uh, america was founded on the principle of separation of church and state where man is free to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience, and yet government has a certain authority that's delegated to them by God, and we are to respect that authority. Now, when when the uh, heavenly intelligences decided to try and get a hold of Nebuchadnezzar's heart, probably very, very likely, because of the earnest prayers of Daniel, they said, you know what, this guy's got such a big head, we're going to have to do something to bring him down. So they amalgamated him. Haven't you read Daniel chapter 4? He was sent out to eat grass like a beast. uh, uh, Feathers grew on him like a bird. And he had long claws like a bird. And he ate grass like a beast. And they did that to him for seven years. And then after that, he realized that he wasn't so great after all. And he says, now I praise and extol him that liveth forever and ever, all whose ways are truth, something like that. Amalgamation. Now, amalgamation is done on a physical level, a scientific level. It's done on a spiritual level. It's done on a intellectual level. It's a distortion. It's a distortion. Now, while you're thinking about all those things, I would like to read for you a statement, this is from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 377. It says, sin sin is a disorganizer. Sin is a disorganizer. Do you realize that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is the perfect pattern of moral wisdom and blessing to bring good to all who are in harmony with it? And that Satan's attack on the law of God is nothing but that which will destroy. Sin is a disorganizer. Have you ever heard someone ask the question, uh, in order to have unity, do we need to have uniformity? Well, that's a whole discussion in itself. But the fact of the matter is, in order to have unity, you need some uniformity. And you need whatever uniformity is essential to that unity. What if we came into church, some people decide to pray while others were singing, and others decide to preach while others were praying? What would you have? You would have chaos. Isn't that right? You've got to have some uniformity in order to have unity. And yet God allows for individuality. But three, the three selected messages says sin is a disorganizer. Okay? It goes on to say wherever it is cherished, in the heart, in the household, in the church, there is Disorder strife, variance, enmity, envy, jealousy, and so forth. So on the one hand, you have sin being a disorganizer, and on the other hand, you have moral correctness, which is defined by the Ten Commandment Law, and you've got perfect peace and perfect harmony. Now, when God created man and women, the Bible says, in the image of God created he them. They were whole. They were correct. They were perfect. So really, brothers and sisters, any sin is an amalgamation. It's a corruption of what God has originally made. So when sin is in the heart or in the life, It's corrupting the person, and it's separating them from God. Okay? Now, when you read the books of Daniel and Revelation, you're going to see, on the one hand, these powers, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, who are amalgamated creatures. And on the other hand, you're going to see God's people symbolized, for one, as three angels' messages flying in the midst of heaven, preaching a pure message. In Revelation chapter 14, you have a group of people who are called the 144,000. They are a preeminent group that the Lord raises up at the end of time, but the Bible says that in their mouth was found how much guile? None. None. You know, we're told in the spirit of prophecy that as we near the end of time, that Satan is going to develop a class of people on his side of the great controversy that will fully reflect the image of Satan. And on the other hand, God is going to reflect a people that will fully reflect the image of Christ. And what's going to happen when God's people become participants with him in the revival and reformation is that they will earnestly repent of sin, put it away, and seek to discard everything that is of an amalgamating nature that would confuse them with the world and separate them from Christ. Now, when you read Revelation chapter 3, God speaks to the last church. We know it, we refer to it often, which is well we need to refer to it even more earnestly because this is an extremely important message, the message to the Laodiceans. And in the message to the Laodiceans, Jesus says, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The Bible's an amazing book. You know, the temperature of the water there mentioned is seven times. Hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. That's six lukewarm ones. In this context, the lukewarm is so distasteful to Christ, it's so bad, that he says that if it continues much longer, I'm going to spew it from my mouth. In other words, he's warning his people, look, if you stay in this lukewarm condition, which I believe it's legitimate to conclude that the problem with God's people at the end of time is they're trying to worship both the world and worship Christ, and they become amalgamated in their thinking and in their practices— Their lives are not what they should be. And because of this, it's it's diluting the power of Christianity in their lives. And Jesus says, look, I can only bear with this so long. And if you don't give up the world, then out out you're going to have to go. Let me read you a few statements here. This is a statement from uh, the book Facts of Faith, and it's talking about Constantine, who, as you know, made the first Sunday law. It says, during the time of 313 to 323, with full consciousness, in other words, Constantine knew exactly where he was going with his philosophy. Constantine sought the realization of his religious aim, that is, the amalgamation of heathenism and Christianity. In other words, Constantine fully intended for his own political purposes to enrich himself and to empower himself to unite Christianity and paganism so that he could increase his power. And in that process, he gave the heathen their day of worship and rejected the true Sabbath. Here's another quote by uh, Cardinal John Newman in the book Development of Christian Doctrine, also in Facts of Faith. We are told in various ways by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion, which is Christianity, so Constantine, in order to promote Christianity to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. All right? So here's what I just read. In order for Constantine to get the heathen to accept Christianity, he said, hey, you can keep the trappings and the exteriors that come from heathenism. Just adopt these certain doctrines of Christianity. He was amalgamating Christianity and heathenism. Okay, now the quote goes on. These are the things that they were used to in their own. And you'll notice in this list uh, a good number of things that are still existing in Catholicism. Incense, lamps and candles, holy water, asylums, holy days and seasons, the ring in marriage, turning to the east, images, are all of pagan origin and sanctified by their adoption into the church. Now, I have some quotes here that I would like to read also on this subject. Quite a bit of time could be spent in the Bible, too, but I'm going to read these few here. This is from Review and Herald, August 23, 1892. It says, By union with the world, the character of God's people becomes tarnished, and through amalgamation with the corrupt, the fine gold becomes dim. Here's another one. 5T, page 292. Error is never harmless. It never sanctifies, but always brings confusion and dissension. Error is never harmless, it never sanctifies, but always brings confusion and dissension. It is always dangerous. The enemy has great power over minds that are not thoroughly fortified by prayer and established in Bible truth. Brothers and sisters, in order for us to have the revival that we need, we are going to have to take very seriously what Jesus said. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I mentioned this in Sabbath school. I'll mention it again. There was a brother speaking at GYC, and I happened to listen a little bit of what he had to say. He was telling about witnessing to a Hindu man. And he mentioned Jesus, and the man said, oh, he said, I love Jesus. He became all excited. But the man who was giving the seminar explained the fact that Hindus believe in many gods. And so when you tell them about Jesus, their tendency is they simply want to atta- put Jesus and add him to the list. The reality of it is is that if in order to follow Jesus, you must get every other god, every other idol off the list, and he alone must have your worship. He will admit of no, no partner on the throne of the heart at all. I was talking to a Hindu lady once when I was out canvassing with students, and I said, Well, what do you believe? She says, We believe in many gods. And I repeated to her in that conversation several times from John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I repeated it several times. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. She softened up some, took a steps to Christ. She said, I am interested in Christianity. But you cannot follow Christ if you're having other gods along with him or before him. I believe one of our biggest challenges in Adventism today is a mixture of truth and error that's being promoted even amongst us. I'm going to read you a quote here from the book Upward Look, page 318. It says, The message given man to proclaim in these last days, the message given man to, that is God's people, the message given man to proclaim in these last days is not to be amalgamated with worldly opinions. Mm -hmm. The message given for these last days is not to be amalgamated with worldly opinions. I have here, I I had an article. This was clear back in 1991. I had this article from the the Adventist Review. Um, There was a gentleman named Roy Adams who evidently wrote quite a few things for the review. And he was talking about the Eucharist. How many of you know what the Eucharist is? I mean, if the word means anything, it means the communion wafer that Catholics consecrate and claim that they have created the literal body of Christ and that you're eating the literal body of Christ when you eat this wafer. They claim, and the quotes are there, that the priests have power to create God, which is blasphemy, let alone do. Anyway, just to illustrate to you, I mean, this is maybe quite an egregious case, but um, Roy Adams, in his article, said that the that the Eucharist fits into the ambit ambit of the three angels' messages. The word ambit means a circle. That man was ideologically and theologically combining the three angels' messages with the beast uh, system, and that's an amalgamation. I was listening just very briefly to uh, a presentation by um, amazing discoveries on satellite. And the presenter there was telling about the emerging church movement that is quite strong and even coming into Adventism. And one of the well-known speakers for the emerging church movement, who's not an Adventist, was invited to speak at this gathering. And one of the brothers there, Don McIntosh, ask Leonard Sweet if he would be simply willing to read a chapter from the book Great Controversy called Modern Revivals. Chapter 27, Modern Revivals, where it details the difference between the practice of true and false Christianity. And he asked him to read it, so Leonard Sweet said, yeah, he said, I'll read it. The next day he had a talk with Leonard Sweet, and he said, what do you think of the chapter in Great Controversy called Modern Revivals? He says, I reject what Ellen White has to say in that chapter on modern revivals, he said the very thing that she is condemning, I am promoting. And then he said, well, what, if you don't agree, if if you agree with this, why do you have me at your, speak at your meetings? Of course, the man asking the question did not have anything to do with his being there. Well, one of the things that Adventism needs today, it doesn't matter their gender, whether male or Female. It doesn't really matter a whole lot their age, whether they're 10 or 50. Adventism today needs voices that are preaching truth unmixed with error. <clears throat> There's a quote in the book, Prophets and Kings, page 505, and it says this. Pro- Prophets and Kings, page 505. It says, the enemy of God and man well knew, the enemy of God, man, that is Satan, Satan well knew that truth unmixed with error is mighty to save. Truth unmixed with error is mighty to save. Brothers and sisters, one of the focuses of God's people at the end of time, in fact, Yeah, it's one of them. There is another major one, but this is one of the major ones. There's two major ones. But one of the major focuses of God's people in the last days is to discard everything in their life that is not like Christ and to get rid of it and to become like Christ in character. Whether it's in diet or in dress or in worldliness or in entertainment or what you read. Or thinking or theology, if it's not according to the word of God, like Isaiah says, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You know, when the 144,000 are described as a people that have in their mouth no guile, let me give you a couple, let me share with you a couple of perspectives on that. One is, for sure, there is no deceit in their mouth. Right? There's no that's what the Bible says. There's no deceit. There's in their mouth is found no go. In other words, in conversation and in their words, they are faithful to their word, they can be trusted, they do not tell any lies. Also, brothers and sisters, this is a group of people being described who has have no theological errors in their teachings. Do you realize that you cannot be amongst the hundred and forty-four thousand? If you are teaching heresy of any kind, that's not according to the word of God. Mm. No, they will be preachers of truth. Now, I just want you to think, how many of you have heard the story of the little boy who always said, wolf, wolf, you heard that story? Well, it must be just a story. I don't know how true it is. But anyway, it does illustrate a fact boy, little boy cried, wolf, wolf, and people got tired of hearing him telling a lie. And one day the wolf came and he cried, wolf, wolf, and the wolf got him. <clears throat> Let me ask you something. Have you ever been around someone that joked and jested so much you really don't know when they're telling the truth and when they're not telling the truth? Let me ask you something. The Bible says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son, but the unbelieving and the murderers and the whoremongers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If all liars are going to miss out on eternal life, why would we even play with it? Think about it. Are we following Christ like we should? You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also had loved us. When the Bible says be therefore followers of God, it's, it, the word followers means be therefore imitators of God. Be like God. Be like Christ in your life. And that's by faith in His power. Amen. Be therefore followers of God and walk in love as Christ also had loved us. And then it says, Fornication. In fact, let me look it up. My brain is just a little weary this morning. I want to read this to you. Ephesians chapter five. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter five. It says, "But fornication, verse three, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saints." So, fornication, covetousness. Let it not be once named among you. In other words, don't let it ever be done among you, not once. Right? The Bible's not saying, okay, it's, you know, it's okay to uh, do a sin once a month, once a year. No, it's a, Paul says, don't let it even be named among you. Now, if you've done it, cast yourself on the mercy of God, repent, and don't do it anymore. But he says, let it not be once named among you, as become as saints. Then he goes on to say, after just saying these things should not be named once among you, he says, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It is true, salvation is a gift. But when we truly receive the gift, we will depend on Christ, cooperate with Christ, and seek to live a godly life. And we won't want to dishonor God's name. So my appeal to you today would be let the Holy Spirit convict you If there's something in your life that's causing you to be lukewarm, to repent of it and to put it away. God is going to have a revival in these last days. Let me read one more quote and then I'll be very close to wrapping it up. This is found in Upward Look, page 238. It says, Beholding Christ for the purpose of becoming like him, The seeker after truth sees the perfection of the principles of God's law. Beholding Christ for the purpose of becoming like him. The seeker after truth sees the perfection of the principles of God's law. And he becomes dissatisfied with everything but perfection. Isn't that interesting? In other words, by communion with God, Bible study, prayer. God's people breathe in the atmosphere of heaven so much they become so united to Christ that they begin hating sin Amen. and being determined to get it out of their lives and by faith to obey Christ. And then, thus, God will have a Christ-like people. You know, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen, he says, "By beholding, we become changed. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed." Are changed into the same image. You know what Jesus wants? He wants to transform you into His image. Amen. So I would urge you, keep reading the Bible over and over again. Keep reading books like The Desire of Ages, The Great Controversy, Christ's Object Lessons, The Testimonies. Soak in these things. Brothers and sisters, we are coming to a time, and I'm gonna, I will wrap it up with this. When the last test comes with the Sunday law, We are told in the book, Great Controversy, uh, page 608, that many who have professed faith in the third angel's message will abandon us and they will join the ranks of the opposition. In other words, there are going to be many who will not be willing to risk their pocketbook, their reputation, or their lives for Christ and his truth, and they join the opposition. And there's a very insightful comment in that, paragraph there on page 608 of Great Controversy, she says, by uniting with the world, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. in other words, their minds have been amalgamated with the world, and they can't see straight spiritually, and they think they're doing okay, and yet they're totally deceived, and they're going to leave us. So just because someone says, I think this is, I don't see anything wrong with this, doesn't mean that they're right, does it? What does the word of God say? Now, God will do for you and I what we cannot do for ourselves. Yeah, we need to examine ourselves, but remember this. Jesus will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And we must have the faith of Abraham, who the Bible says he was fully persuaded that what God had promised... He was able also to perform. And that's the kind of faith that we must have. We must be fully persuaded that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. There's a happy day coming. I pray we meet on the sea of glass. The best place in the universe is right before the throne of God to look on the face of God. There's a happy day coming. Let's be there. God bless you.
1: Thank you, Brother Kent. Brother Kent.
0: I always find it interesting that it seems like the Lord wants to get a certain message out. Uh, he impresses whoever is in that position. It's interesting, just last Sabbath, we were preaching on the great controversy. And um, and the Lord impressed Kent to preach on the great controversy. And I would guarantee you, God has other people amongst That are preaching a great controversy i've seen it again and again it always amazes me uh let's turn in our our closing
1: hymn 329 take the world you can have the world but give me jesus amen 329 and when you find it uh shall we stand
0: Before we pray, I would like to just urge anyone, if there's someone here who does not have a devotional life and you know you need to get the habit of it, please make a decision today to do that. Read your Desire of Ages. Read your steps to Christ. Read your Great Controversy. Read your Bible. Diligently study these things. Is there anybody here today that would like to make a commitment to have a devotional life or renew yours to God? Good for you, sister. And also... There may be someone here today that has not given their life to Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have, may God help us to measure where we are at in time. I don't, any, I don't think any of us quite comprehend it. The reality of it is, if you're looking at the events that are going on in the world, we don't have much time. We don't have much time. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Eternity is before us. You, you cannot bring up any subject that is so important as the subject of following Christ, surrendering to him, and living for him. And I would urge anyone who is here today, if you have not given your life to Christ, to do so. Do not leave this place without doing so. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that thou will forgive us for our lukewarmness. We pray that thou forgive us for our pride, our our backsliding, for our amalgamation with the world. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will come near to us, that he will open up to us the preciousness of Jesus, that Jesus died for us, he loves us, and he has a beautiful, eternal plan for us. Dear Lord God, I pray that you'll bring a revival and a reformation to the Brooklyn Church, that you'll bring a revival and reformation in my life and in my family, that you'll bring a revival and reformation to your people here in Ohio, and that we will be strong for the truth, we will be faithful in these last days, and that we will be, as we were read to this morning in the scripture reading, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Please, Father, bless us, and I pray that thou will lead God and direct us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.